You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. What is your least favorite part of school? If you think about when you were in school or if you're currently in school, what, what is your least favorite part? Uh, I, I think typically, you can't say school, okay? That's just out of the equation. You gotta go to school, but what's the least favorite part? Typically, if you're asked, a student, what's your least, uh, recess is definitely not at the top of the least favorite parts of school, right? Um, lunch break, not on the least favorite. Homework, you're starting to get hot, right? Like pe- kids don't, students don't typically like homework. But I think the least favorite part of school is test taking. The anxiety that comes from having to regurgitate information is just like, ugh, like I can't handle the stress of test taking. Although test taking can be the least favorite part of school, it really is probably the most important part of school. Why? Because it reveals to us what we're gaining from the things that we're learning. So it's one thing for me to sit in a classroom, to learn online, and then to go and just say, I'm learning the information. It's another thing when I have a test in front of me and I have to regurgitate that information because testing shows my understanding of the subject that is coming. Now, I know for some students in the room, since it's a family worship day, you've been out of school for a few days. And so I thought as a way to prep you to get back into school on Monday that we would have a test today. And I'm going to give you the three questions that I'm gonna ask at the end of my message about the message today as a way to test you, sort of get you back in the groove of school. These three questions. What are we gonna learn about God from the text that we're gonna look at? Where do we see Jesus? And then last, how do we respond to testing? So these three questions, be ready to answer them at the end of my message. What do we learn about God? Where do we see Jesus? And how do we respond to testing? Now, why are we talking so much about testing? Like, can you get off of that? I came to church to be encouraged today, not to think about the fact of going back to school and testing and the anxiety that that brings in my heart. Well, the reason we're talking about testing is because the section that we're going to look at in the book of Exodus today is all about testing. It's about God testing the children of Israel. So if you remember, we're coming on the heels of Exodus chapter 12 through 14, where we see the Red Sea crossing, where God does this miracle through Moses, putting out his staff, the water split into the children of Israel walk across on dry ground, probably half a mile wide, 12 miles across. They get to the other side, 
Pharaoh's enemy, the enemy is pursuing him, Pharaoh's army, they come, Moses puts the staff over, the water comes and kills all of the people. And in Exodus chapter 15, you hear this song that Moses writes that all the children of Israel sing together in worship of God. So they're on a really high experience right now with God. Like this is incredible what God has done. Now God is going to test them. Let me show you from the text how I know that this is the theme. The theme. There's three test narratives that's going to happen in our section that we're going to look at today in Exodus from chapter 15, 22 to chapter 17, 7. The three are this. In Mara, there's spoiled water. That'll be the first test. The second test is at sin. So that's not sin in the sense that you sin against God. This is sin in the context of a location, all right? That's just the name of it. They think it maybe was named after a God in that area, but it's sin. So this is the provision of manna in chapter 16. And then Rephidim, the, the, the no water test. So let me give you from each one of these tests, let me give you the word test appearing in the text. So in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 25, the first test, it says, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them. So that's gonna happen in the first one. The second one, Exodus 16, four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. So this is the second test. And then the third text, test is in Exodus chapter 17 and verse two. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us a water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And then here Moses flips it on him and says, why do you test the Lord? So he's saying that the children of Israel at this moment are sort of turning back and testing the Lord. They're, they're putting the Lord on probation. So three times in these sec this section of scripture, you find the word test. Now that's one theme of the text of the text, but then we find another thing. This sort of goes hand in hand with testing is that we find that the people are complaining or grumbling or, or whining is a good word to say as well. Exodus 15 and verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? That's in the first test. In the second test, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then in Exodus chapter 17, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. So you have this theme of testing and you have this theme of grumbling. What is grumbling? Uh, grumbling comes from an attitude of dissatisfaction for one's lot and the inability to do anything about it. So God is testing the children of Israel. Like he tested Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he's gonna test the people of Israel and see about their heart as well. And so in this section of scripture, he gives them three tests. And we see every test they fail. So the first test is the test of the water of Mara. So in Exodus chapter 15, open your Bibles there, turn on your device. I'm going to give you a big overview of it, um, and then we'll come back and answer our questions for the test at the end. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 22, 
It says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So we're coming on the hills of them walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, singing praises to God, two million people worshiping God together. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So can you imagine traveling three days together in a wilderness? Now we understand the cloud could have been over them that was leading them to sort of help with the sun. But still, if you're traveling three days in the wilderness, you're gonna be thirsty. So they're thirsty, don't have any water, three days out from the Red Sea. They come to a place called Mara. When they get there, they find water. But when they go to drink the water, the water is bitter, right? So they spit out the water and the Bible says they grumble they complain to Moses and say, what's the deal, right? Why is the water bitter? So rather than God going after the people and because of their rebellion and their complaining against him, God graciously provides for them. And he tells Moses to go get a tree and throw the tree in the water. And when he throws the tree in the water, the water turns into sweet tea, right? And they drink it to their heart's content. And everybody said, Amen. no, you're not. It just says the water turns sweet. So sweet tea is Steve's version of that, that maybe the tree was like a tea tree. <laughs> I didn't use that. That was, a, that was a really good joke right there. That's funny. That's a funny one. Um, so, but the water actually just turned sweet, all right? So they could drink the water and God graciously provided for them. Then the Lord comes to Moses and he says, here's what I want you to tell the people. And God begins to do this as they're moving towards Mount Sinai, where he'll give them the covenant. God instructs his people. And he says, here's, here's the deal. I want you to listen to me. And I want you to do what I tell you to do. And if you do that, I'm not going to have the plagues or the diseases that came on the Egyptians come on you. So I want you to listen and I want you to obey me. And then I'm gonna be your healer, the Lord, uh, the Lord, your healer there, it says in the text. And so you obey me, you listen to me, and then I'm gonna make sure that you're taken care of. I'm gonna make sure that you're graciously provided for. And so Moses relates the message to the children of Israel. So the first test, this test of Mara, they fail, they complain. And they grumble against God, but God graciously provides. Then we come to Exodus chapter 16. We come to the second test that God gives them. And it says that they set out from where they were, Elam, and they go out to the wilderness of sin. And in verse two, it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Like, can you believe these people? They have just watched God deliver them from their army by opening the sea for them to cross. They have just watched God turn water into sweet tea, right? They've just watched God do this. And now they're complaining that they had it better in the land of Egypt. Do you remember what we learned about 
the land of Egypt in Exodus chapter one and chapter two and chapter three of how miserable it was and they were crying out to God. And as they even cried out to God, things got worse and they made them work harder seven days a week and were, were treating them more and more poorly week after week after week. Like it wasn't good. If you don't know, it wasn't good for them in Egypt. But they're in this moment crying out to Moses and grumbling and complaining to Moses and Aaron and saying, would we be back in Egypt where we were right by the bread basket and we could just eat all that we wanted? Church, can I give you a warning that Satan does the same thing in our lives to deceive us to think that walking in the flesh, that living in sin is way better than walking in the spirit and living for Christ. That man, it was so much better before you knew Christ, right? You could do what you wanted. There was no, no, no pressure, right? You just, if it felt good, you did it. If you thought it, you did it. It just, man, that, those were the good old days. This is how Satan deceives us is he gets us to think that the wilderness, that, that the slavery of sin is a good thing. And I would call you today, if you believe that, don't believe the lie of Satan. It, your life wasn't better before Christ. Your life is much better now that Christ lives in you and is guiding you and directing you. Yes, you may have tests and yes, it may be harder in some ways, but it is better to walk with Christ in this life and the joy that will come than to live in the pleasures of this life and sin of this world today. And so they got caught up in this, that it was better in Egypt. But I love how the Lord responds. Again, he graciously provides. The Lord said to Moses, then behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gathers a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. So here's what God does to provide for the people. They're complaining about not having enough food. So God says, here's what I'm gonna do. When you wake up in the morning, I'm gonna put this wafer-like substance on the ground, like dew. And you go out there and you collect that. And you collect an omar is what the text says. An omar is about two liters. So think of a two liter bottle of uh, pop, all right? Or if you don't drink pop, a two liter bottle of water, all right, so, or sweet tea. But you, you get that two liter bottle and you fill it up each for each person of your house. And God's gonna do that every day for you. When you go out, there'll be this wafer substance on the ground, you pick it up, that's the manna. They didn't know what it was and they said, what is it? That's where the term manna comes from is they didn't really know what it was, but God was providing for them. And so they ate, they took the manna each for the individuals in their house. That's how God provided them in the morning. Then as the day went on and the sun would come out, it would melt the, the manna that was left. If they took too much manna, it would spoil because God said only take enough for you. It, it reminds me of Jesus' prayer that he called us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I think Jesus had that in mind when he called us to pray in that way, that God would give us enough of what we need for each day. So he did that in the morning. 
And then God was so gracious to them that he not only provided them this wafer type substance in the morning, but in the evening, quail would come and land and they would catch the quail and they would have meat to eat at night from the quail. So they would have this manna wafer stuff in the morning, then at night quail would just happen to come into where they were. They would capture the quail and they would eat. And God would do this for them six days a week. And on the sixth day, God said, I want you to gather enough for the Sabbath. This is where we're introduced to this idea of rest. It takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis when God created the earth in six days and then on the seventh day he's rested. And so now he's beginning to implement this idea of Sabbath in Exodus chapter 17. And we'll get to more of this as we get to the 10 commandments. But he says, I want you to get enough and I want you to watch God provide for you. Because every day he's only providing a day, but on, on the sixth day, he's gonna provide enough for you for two days. And so the people are to go out and they're to gather. But what do the people do? Some listen and some disobey. They're like, we gotta get enough for 14 days. And they go out there and they get more manna that they need. They get more quail than they need. And so God ends up making that spoil. And the Bible says that Moses even gets angry with the people because it's like, this is what God has told us to do. Why are we failing the test again and again and again? God has said, just get enough for today. Stop taking three liters, right? Just take two liters of bread. They failed the test again. But God wants the children of Israel to remember God's provision. So God does this for 40 years. We'll find this out later, but God does this for them for 40 years, taking care of their physical need, their, their need for food. And God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to get some of this manna and I want you to put it in a jar and I want you to keep it as a remembrance of God's faithfulness to you. So get the manna, uh, two liters of it, put it in a jar, and then I want you to keep this manna for generation after generation so that when the dads are sitting around talking about what God has done and how God has been faithful, they can pull out that jar and be like, here's how we know God's been faithful. This manna, God provided for us every day for 40 years till we went into the land of Canaan. And when the kids come up and they point at that jar and they're like, what's in that jar? we can say God faithfully provided for us year after year after year. I would encourage you as a church to consider what are things in your life that you point to as God's faithfulness to you? I'd say if you have a home, I would encourage you to have things in your home or in your office that remind you of God's faithfulness so that when your kids or when people come to your house and they look and they see that and it sort of looks out of place because maybe it's not like doesn't go with all the decorations, but it's there that you can point to that and say, that's the faithfulness of God. So if you come to my office, I have several little knick-knacky things up in my office, but, but one of the things that I have is I have a plaque that has a name on it. And typically you're supposed to have a plaque, I guess maybe that has your name on it, but that's sort of weird to me. So I don't have a plaque with my name on it, but I do have a plaque with a name on it that says Ralph Dean Lyles. And this is Ruth's grandpa and, and Becky's grandpa who uh, was the first pastor in our family's history that we know of. And so I put that on my a bookshelf as a reminder of God's faithfulness. So God was faithful to call Ralph Dean Lyles 
to be a pastor who then influenced Ken Lyles, that's my father-in-law, who then happened to come to Topeka, Kansas, where I was going to church and influenced me and led me to go into ministry. And so I can look and see it, God's faithfulness since 1948, that God has been faithful in our family to provide year after year after year after year. So I have that in there as a visual reminder And I know we live in a disposable time, right? Get something, we throw it away. We take pictures on our phones and then we upload them to the cloud. But I would encourage you, maybe it's scripture. Maybe it's something, maybe it's your story. Uh, Just something in your home and in your life that reminds you of the faithfulness of God. So in Exodus chapter 16, they fail the test again, but God graciously provides. But God is pointing us to something more with the manna and we'll get to that in a second. Then in Exodus chapter 17, they come to the third test and they move on in the wilderness and they come to this camp at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now this no water test is the idea that maybe there was water there, but they're beginning to get to enemy territory. And we'll find this next week that they go to their first battle, but they're getting to enemy territory and there's no water available to them. So what do you think the people do? You can say it, it's all right to talk at church. They, they grumble, they complain, right? They're like, ah, there's no honor for us, right? And so they complain again about the fact that God's not graciously providing for them. And what does God do? God does what he's consistent to do. He graciously provides again. And so here's the, the plan. Moses, you're gonna take the stick that you used to cross the Red Sea. Grab that stick. You're gonna walk in front of the people with the stick, with the elders behind you. You're gonna go to Mount Horeb and you're gonna go to a certain rock. We're not sure if it was a boulder or what it was. And you're gonna go to the rock and you're gonna take that stick and you're gonna strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water's gonna come out of the rock and it's gonna provide for the people the water that they need. And so Moses, being obedient to God, goes and takes the stick, hits the rock. God graciously provides again for them. Water flows and they have the water that they need. Here's the cool thing about this Mount Horeb. If you remember in Exodus chapter three, we'd already been at Mount Horeb because this is where God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. So we've come 360 here where Moses was at this place and the people needed to deliver and God came to Moses and said, I'm gonna use you to deliver the people at Mount Horeb through a burning bush. And now we're back at Mount Horeb with 2 million people and Moses leading the people, God being true to his word and God provides for the people by hitting the, the rock and water flows out and God graciously again provides for his people. But did the people pass the test? No. Three tests that God gives them, three times they fail. So remember I told you I was gonna ask you three questions about uh, for a test at the end. And so here's, let's go back to these questions as a way to review and sort of remember and and see if we can't uh, bring understanding to the subject that we've talked about today. So first question is this, what do we learn about God? The first thing I think that we learn about God is that, and, and the main thing is that he graciously provides. Like let's be transparent with each other. If that was our kids, 
we probably wouldn't be graciously providing for them. Stop whining at me. Go figure out where water is. Go find some bread. Stop whining, right? But what does God do? He repeatedly, even in their rebellion, graciously provides for them over and over and over again. Do you know that God has graciously provided for you over and over and over again? In fact, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet a sinner, you know what a sinner is? A complainer one who rebels against God, one who looks at the world and is dissatisfied because the creator has messed this whole thing up. That is a sinner. And it says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God graciously provided for you when you weren't even asking. When you were complaining, when you were running from God, God was graciously providing for you. And I want to encourage you today, if you're living in rebellion to God, it is not an accident that you are in this room today. And God has placed you in this room. And this is his grace pursuing you and providing for you a way through the person of Jesus Christ to come back to God or maybe for the first time to come to God. And Jesus did that for you. He said, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in your rebellion, God is graciously providing you a way back to God through the person of Jesus Christ. And I would call you to respond to that grace don't be like the children of Israel and continue to have a hard heart. Don't continue to get farther and farther away from the grace of God. Let the grace of God consume your heart. Receive him today. Believe in him today because God graciously provides and the text teaches that us that over and over and over again, that God graciously provides for us even in our rebellion, even in our complaining. So this is what we learn about God. Then where do we see Jesus? Let me give you three instances. This man, this section of scripture is packed full of, of the picture of Jesus in these three ways. First, we see Jesus past the test. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry. And it says in Matthew chapter four and verse one, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, to the devil and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's the idea. As the Jewish people are reading Matthew chapter four and hearing of Jesus going to the wilderness, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about their wilderness experience and that they failed every test that they experienced. But Jesus, and they were there 40 years, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And what does Jesus do? He passed every test that came at him. As the devil would come and say, turn the uh, rock into bread. Jesus says, I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He passed the test that the children of Israel couldn't pass. Then in John chapter six, 
you find the feeding of the 5,000. And we find in this feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus is the bread of heaven. And so you remember the story. Jesus feeds 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes, right? Feeds all these people, thousands of people. And after he's fed them, the next day, the people come back and they're like, we want Jesus to be our king. Obviously, he's met our physical needs. So can you sort of be the man for us? And Jesus begins to interact with them. And they said, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying the sign was what we just read in Exodus chapter 16, that God had provided them manna from heaven. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 32 to 35. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus makes the connection for them. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So how do we see Jesus? Jesus is the manna from heaven. Jesus is the ultimate bread from heaven. As God would graciously provide manna for them year after year after year, God has graciously provided us through the person of Jesus Christ that if we come and believe in him, we never have to be hungry or thirsty again. He provides for us. And as they would have had the feeding of the 5,000 and talked through this, their mind would have gone back to Exodus chapter 16. And now they're beginning, some are beginning to make the connection that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the one that will truly satisfy our heart. And then the last is the striking of the rock and that Christ is the rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 4, Paul says this, and he earlier he talks about going through the Red Sea, being baptized into Moses, which is the idea of being identified with Moses. And he says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So Paul is saying that the rock that Moses struck was a picture of Christ that was pointing us to someone who would come, who would be struck for us and would in turn give us life. And that would be Jesus. That Jesus was the rock because when you struck something in the Old Testament, that was judgment. And so Jesus came and he was struck for us. He was judged on our behalf so that from his life would flow abundant life so that you and I could experience not only abundant life now, but abundant life to come as well. So where do we see Jesus? We see that Jesus passed the test that you and I and the children of Israel would fail, that Jesus is the bread from heaven, that this manna was pointing to a greater bread that would come and that Christ is the rock. He was the one that was struck for us. And then the last question, and this is a multiple choice, so I'll let you answer it how it fits best for you. But how do we respond to testing? How do we respond to testing? From the text, you really have two choices. You can complain or you can trust. You can complain or you can trust. 
The children of Israel, we see complaining. When Jesus is tested, we see trusting. And so you have a choice when trials and testing come in your life. Are you gonna complain? Are you gonna trust? Because James 1, 2 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if you experience trials or testing. He says when you experience trials and testing. The reality is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to be tested. There is no such thing as an untested faith. Your faith will be tested. High school students, when you go to college, your faith will be tested. Your faith will be put on on jury, right? It will be put on the stand and be tested. Your heart will be revealed. As we follow Jesus Christ, we must expect that there will be testing in our life. And the response is up to us. Are we gonna be like the children of Israel and complain? Are we gonna be like Jesus and trust? I grew up in a smaller church and in that smaller church, long time ago now, you had what we called hymn books or they were books that had songs in it that you would sing. So today we put everything on the screen. You don't have anything in your hand, but back in those days, uh, you had a book in your hand and the guy would stand up in front of you like Clint and would be like, turn to page, you know, whatever, 50 or that kind of idea. And you'd turn there and you'd, you'd sing the song from the book. Now it's a lot nicer with the, the songs on the screen. But I remembered as I was thinking about this idea of are we gonna complain or are we gonna trust? I thought about an old hymn that we used to sing uh, at the church I grew up in and it was called Trust and Obey. And the chorus went like this, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I like that idea of happy in Jesus. Because here's what we know, church. Complainers are miserable. If you've ever been around a person that complains, they're miserable. Nothing's ever right. Nothing ever is good, right? They're just constantly miserable. But I love that the, the writer of this hymn chose to say, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. The people that you're around that are happy in Jesus are people that are trusting and obeying God. See, the children of Israel were miserable because they were living in sin of complaining over and over and not remembering who God is. But Jesus, he was happy in God because he was trusting his father. He was doing what his father said to do. And may we as God's people not follow the way of the children of Israel, but may we follow the way of Jesus and may we be people who trust and obey so we can be happy in Jesus. Because as I can guarantee you that test will come in school this week for some of you, and you're gonna have to regurgitate your understanding of a subject. So I can guarantee us as a church that test will come in our lives and it will reveal what we believe about God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Exodus that guides our thinking about you, 
and ultimately points us to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, as we examine our own hearts today, that we would see if we are living in sin of complaining and grumbling when tests come in our lives. And if we are, may you give us the grace to be like you and to trust and obey. Because I know it's the heart of all of us that we would be happy in you. And so please work that out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.